Welcome to another great message at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So I want to share something with you that I think is quite um, significant. In the city of Athens, there's a hill called Mars Hill. And in uh, the Greek, if we transliterate the word, it's called the Areopagus. Now, there are different ways of, announce, of pronouncing this word. The, the British would say Areopagus, like, like a Cockney Irishman, Areopagus. Uh, the Americans kind of put a, a skip in their step when they say that, because they say Areopagus. Uh, I don't know what the South Africans will say if they have to read that word, especially the politicians. I think they will say, Oreo and an asparagus, kind of uh, thing like that. But quite a significant hill. You can still see it today in the city of Athens. But what I want to do is I want to focus on an incident that happened on this hill many years ago. And in fact, it... Uh, coincides with Paul's first documented message that he preached on the continent of Europe. And so I would like to call my sermon the Areopagus Academy, because I'm going to kind of give you a crash course on evangelism. Let's call it Evangelism 101, because Paul was really evangelizing here, and uh, we know that we are all called to be witnesses, but how do we do it? And I think Paul gave us a brilliant example here. So in Acts 17, here from verse 16 onward, we read about this. And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I want to encourage you, go, uh, make a note of this. Go and read it at home. Go and study it. Go and meditate on it. Go and allow God to give you illumination uh, about that. And... Um, I'll give you a short summary, well, a summary is usually short, of, uh, of what the scripture is all about. So Paul lands in Athens, he goes about the city, and he's so stirred in his spirit because it says that the city was given over to idols. He's really upset about it. He goes and he does a walkabout through the whole city. He, he observes everything. Uh, in, in a good way, looking at it, and then uh, starts ministering in the synagogue to the Jews, goes into the marketplace, and I like what it says there, it, he ministered to whoever happened to be there, and then lands on this Mars Hill, which were, was the place where philosophers came together, where government officials, politicians came together, judges, etc., etc., and they had that yard discussion uh, about important things. So at this occasion, he uses a very unique way, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he uses certain bridges in their culture, in their religion, to get them to the message of the gospel. And then he shares the gospel uh, from almost from their perspective and eventually lands up and tells them it's really all about Jesus. And then the result is uh, quite a number of people mocked him. Others said, well, we need some time to think about this. 
and a few actually believed and, and joined him. So what I want to do is I want to show you Paul's style of sharing the gospel with, let me say, um, people that have never heard it. And I know that there are different ways of witnessing, and I think everybody needs to find the style that really suits them. But I do believe there are certain important principles in this incident, and that's why I called it the Areopagus Academy in Acts 17 that we can learn from. I do want to, at times, uh, contrast that with how the modern church sometimes acts and how we've gone so far away from what should be a biblical method of speaking to people about Jesus. So here's the first lesson that we learn from Paul's experience there. We should have a passion for God's kingdom. We must be passionate about the things of God. In verse 16 of Acts 17, and if you do have your Bible, you can follow it with me. It says, while Paul was waiting at Athens, it says, his spirit was provoked within him. As I said, it's because of the multiplicity of idols, false gods in that city. And not only does it show that he was angry at the situation in the city, but it shows that he had passion for the true God. And that was what, what drove Paul. He was, he was angry. He was provoked. I know ministers, if they were traveling for the first time and preaching in Europe for the first time, they might be for other things because they didn't, the host church didn't give them a first-class ticket. They might be angry because they were not booked into the uh, Olympia five-star hotel in Athens. They might be angry because people did not recognize their apostolic office or their rightful title. Like I've seen some people call themselves arch-apostle. Apostle is not even good enough any longer. So, so it's such a contrast in the modern church. What upsets you? And Paul got upset because he felt that the, the cause of Christ had to be made known in, in that city. It stirred his spirit. It spurred him on to action. And uh, I, I'll be honest with you. I get upset sometimes when I see what religion and what tradition can do to people. That's what upsets me. When God is misrepresented, even in the church today. So we need to have that passion for who God is and, and, and what he stands for. Now, it's very interesting, uh, and I don't have the time here because I'm going to try and cover so much, but what actually was Paul's response to this provocation in his spirit? He went on a walk through the city, and let me say, it was not a kind of a prayer walk to impress others so that they can see how spiritual you are. If you read, there are certain key words found in this passage where it says he was passing through, which literally means he did a thorough walk everywhere over the city. It speaks about him perceiving things, which means he looked closely at it. He, he uh, uh, obtained knowledge of these things. It, he speaks about considering the objects of their worship, which again speaks about a considerable, a, a, a considering in an attentive way that he could understand them and, and relate to them. So that's what Paul did. There's one preacher who said this, that Paul looked at Athens not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. That's why he landed there. 
And here's the first thing that I think we can realize when we land in a situation where things are given over to, to idols, etc., etc. We need to get to know the people where God has placed us. Familiarize yourself. Take an interest in those people. Find out what their issues are, what their problems, their challenges are. Uh, establish what is important to them. Care about them and purposely look for opportunities to talk to them. Don't isolate yourself. You see, we need to be part of the world without being worldly. Jesus said we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And don't lose your contact with the world because there's a difference between uh, being isolated from the world and being just not part of the world. So there's a difference between separation and isolation, and we should not live our lives in isolation. Now, I tell you what modern-day Christians would have done in a situation. Some of them would have arranged a holy protest march in the city. Others would have picketed in front of City Hall, or they would have uh, petitioned the council to limit idolatry, and they would have done all of those things. Some might have defaced a few idols or statues during the night or placed a bomb in one of the temples on the, on the Acropolis. Others may have uh, said, no, we cannot do anything because our intercession team is not here yet. They need to, to bind the prince over the city before we can do anything. Now, I don't know where we get these doctrines from. We need to, to follow a, a biblical style of uh, evangelizing. So let's learn from Paul. He could have stayed, in, stayed enraged about the idols or he could have got engaged with the people and that's what he did. He could have lashed out or he could have reached out. He could have attacked the Athenians with religion or attract them with the gospel. And that's what he did. He allowed his passion to be turned into compassion for the people. And that's what we should have, a passion for the kingdom and a compassion for people. Here's the second thing that we can learn from Paul. He proclaimed the gospel everywhere to everyone. Again, when you go and read this passage, look out for key words, and I'll, I'll just give them to you quickly. He spoke, verse 19. He said, verse 22. He taught, verse 19. He reasoned, verse 17. He proclaimed, verse 18. He preached, verse 18. So Paul clearly decided, that's it. This is the, the weapon that I'm going to use. That's the Word of God. And he spoke the Word of God with boldness uh, in every kind of way. And then he preached everywhere. As I said, he started in the synagogue to the Jews and to the Gentile worshipers there. He went to the marketplace, preached there. And I, I, I want to say something that I said to you before. You don't need a pulpit to preach. Your desk, your sales counter, whatever it is, could become your pulpit. Because it's in the marketplace where the message is needed. And then this significant place that I want to focus on, the Areopagus, as I said, the place of the judicial and legislative Oh, I'll get it right eventually. Okay, the place where the legal guys met. 
Now, let me just, just give you the background of where Paul finds himself, because I don't think we always realize uh, the significance of this. Firstly, he's in Greece. Greece at that time, a country of mythology, of idolatry, of astrology, many false gods. The Greeks even adopted and renamed gods from other nations because they felt they didn't have enough. So that's the nation that he finds himself. Then he finds himself in the capital city, Athens. Athens was named after a, a false deity, Athena, the so-called goddess of wisdom. So can it get worse? Yes. <laughs> it's a city full of idols. Historians tell us at that time there were at least 30,000 statues of false gods just in that city. In Athens, in fact, there were more idols and, and altars and statues than in the whole of Greece at that time. So Paul find him, finds himself in the center of idolatry. Another thing about Athens is it was a city of ungodly and atheistic philosophies. That was the city of so uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno, all of these, these ungodly philosophers. And then he finds himself on this hill called Areopagus. As we said, it means the, the Mars Hill, again, named after a false god, the Greek god of war, Mars. What made it worse is that hill was also associated with some underground goddesses. They were known by the Romans as the Furies, and they were sometimes depicted as as witch-like creatures who carried whips and they had wings like bats and heads like dogs and hair like uh, hissing snakes and fiery eyes weeping tears of blood. That's scary. But that's the kind of situation that Paul preaches from. And, and the last thing that made it worse, it is said that on the slope of that hill, there also was a cemetery. And for a Jew, there was not a place that you would, you would find yourself in because it was considered to be ceremonially unclean if you were in a cemetery. The most unlikely place to preach. And I think if I compare it with today's church, some of our fundamental charismatics would never find themselves in a place like that. They would never preach like that, in a, in a place like that. And here's what they would have done. They would have gone into spiritual warfare mode, <laughs> or what they think is supposed to be spiritual warfare. Maybe they would have burnt some pagan scrolls. As I said, they, they wanted to bind the, the prince over the city. Some of them would have shouted in tongues at the devil. Where people get that, I don't know. It's not in the Bible. They would have anointed every object with special oil imported from Shiloh in Israel. They would have poured out communion wine to redeem the land. Where do people get those doctrines from? What did Paul do? Did he get into all kinds of funny, weird things? No. What he did, he preached the word. I preached in some strange places. I know I would regularly preach in a church in England that was a Freemason hall. And people would say, did you first clean out the hall? No. 
I tell you what, because the word is strong enough to clean out anything. And God wants the Freemasons to be free. <laughs> I remember in our young days, we used to have our youth meetings in, in what was called the moth hall. The moths were, I think it stood for members of the tin hat, was a World War I uh, kind of honorable organization. We didn't care whether there were moths or flies or anything. We, we just <laughs> preached the gospel. Today, I know in, in, in other places in England, churches have taken over bingo halls. I, I distinctly remember doing a meeting once in a hotel uh, over the weekend, and our regular room, the, the hall that we met in, was not available on the Sunday, so we had to meet in the bar. I have some photos where I preach with all the wrong spirits behind me. <laughs> Did it in any day, in any way, water down the gospel? No. <laughs> in fact, my message was more distilled <laughs> and focused. So we can learn from Paul's reaction in that situation. And let me tell you about the church in the early days. When they were persecuted, what did they do? That they start to get into that spiritual warfare mode? I tell you what, they prayed and what did they ask for? God, give us boldness to preach the gospel. Because here's what spiritual warfare is. The only offensive weapon that you have, the weapon of attack is the sword of the Spirit. That's the Word of God. That's what spiritual warfare is about. Preach the gospel. Amen. So Paul used every opportunity in every place, and he preached to everybody, Jews, uh, devout people, Gentile uh, proselytes in the synagogue, Greeks, Athenians, foreigners, shoppers in the marketplace, philosophers, politicians, counselors, judges, men and women, and that's the message for us. Don't limit yourself in any way. Here's the third thing we can learn from Paul. Do not have a judgmental approach. Paul was passionate about God's kingdom, but he did not retaliate with condemnation. In fact, he responded with communication of the gospel. And I'm going to show you, he never compromised, but he complimented the people. That's how he started. In fact, let me just read this to you, verses 22 and 23 from Acts 17. It says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now listen to this. This is so unlike what people would do in churches today. Here's what he does, and I do believe that he chose his words very carefully. In a subtle way, he was complimenting them. He starts off and he says, men of Athens, making them proud of their citizenship, of their place of residence. I have found that if you can connect with people and say to them it's such an honor, and really is an honor to preach anywhere, 
but just tell them it's an honor to be in your city, that kind of thing. Now, just keep this in mind. Before Paul preached, they called him, they insulted him. They said that he was a babbler, that he was a proclaimer of false God. And the word babbler is a very interesting word. Let me sum it up this way. It actually speaks about a, a seed picker like a bird that would, um, would, would pick up bits of trivial, irrelevant information. So they basically called Paul a scavenger of scraps of information, a swaggering monger of pseudo-intellectual facts. That's how they insulted him. Still, he compliments them. He speaks kindly to them. Men of Athens. And then, wow, listen to this one. He says, I have noticed that you are very religious. And that's a compliment. And incidentally, the Greek word used here, quite a lengthy word, I don't want to impress you with this, but it's daisy daimon esteros. Daimon, you might recognize the word demon in there. And he actually, it actually means people that are more religious and fearing of deities than others are. So he says to them, not you are religious, you are very religious, complimenting them. And then he flattered them even more. He said, I see that you are involved in worship. He actually calls them worshipers. Wow. So that's how he starts. And I want to say this to you. Treating people with contempt will not help them to be brought into God's kingdom. Respect people. Treat them with dignity. Insults are not the seed of the new birth. Disrespect will not lead to repentance. We need to, to give people some uh, dignity. I'm sure if some contemporary crazy charismaniac would have preached there, he would have said, you bunch of uncircumcised, unclean unbelievers, you senseless sinners, you hell-bound heathens, you poor pagans, you demon-possessed delinquents. Thank God I'm not like you. <laughs> but because of me, you can become like me. I tell you what, I don't want to become like some religious preachers. And let me say, we cannot shock people or scare people into heaven. I remember reading about John G. Lake when he was on, on the ship on the way to South Africa. He specifically asked God, what should his message be? to the people of South Africa. And he said, God said to him, he says, for too long, preachers have tried to club others into heaven. He says, I want you to go and preach the righteousness of God. And so here is what we can learn from Paul, not to be judgmental. Here's another lesson. We must connect with people. Paul wanted to find some common ground, something that they could agree and, and uh, relate to and that, they, that he could use to associate with these people. Now listen to this, and this is where it becomes shocking to the charismatics. Because in verse 23, it says that he uses an altar, one of their pagan, polytheistic, religious altars as a launch pad for his gospel message. He says, I found this altar with an inscription to the unknown God. 
So Paul used that as a catalyst, as a connection with people. Please listen to me. Sometimes we need to read the newspapers to know what's going on. Watch the news broadcast. Don't be so isolated that you cannot even relate to the people. I sometimes shock people by quoting some popular songs. Recently in a, in a sermon, I, I quoted Pink. And people were absolutely shocked. Let me say this. Please understand this. God is all the while revealing himself to people, even through nature. And sometimes people have this God moment where the truth shines through the hole in their head. <laughs> and they do get some truth. And we should not discount that because God is working in them. So here he found something that, that would have freaked out the fundamentalists. What is worse he then quotes not from the Bible, the Old Testament. He quotes one of their pagan poets. Look at verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. If you know the context that that was spoken of, it, it did not even mention God. It was about Zeus, the chief god of, of the Greeks. But Paul uses the bit of illumination that they have to introduce them to the true God. I want to put it this way. Sometimes we need a bridge to show people the way. And that's what, what you can do. So he quotes a pagan poet. I think in, in comparing it to our days, it would be worse than, than quoting Steve Stoffsayer. I did not mention any names. I was trying to, to protect the guilty. <laughs> but we need to be relevant. That's the bridge. We're not compromising in any way. Now, there's something else that's not always recognized. In fact, in the beginning of that verse, in him we live and move and have our being, a, a, a well-known phrase, an often quoted phrase, did you know that even that phrase is found in earlier poetry uh, about Zeus? So, so Paul quotes these things. Why? Because he uses it as a connecting point to bring them to the gospel. He wants to get their attention. Here we are with our fort mentality today. We don't want to connect with the world out there. We, we, we uh, isolate ourselves in this fort. You know, you know those forts and castles with the drawbridges and the moat around it. And, and we close everything and maybe... At night, when we see a lonely, straggler sinner, we quickly send out some troops, we grab him, we bring him in, and we close the gate again. The church should not be a fort, but a force. Jesus said, you are the salt of the world. And if I can say it with great respect, a church building is like a salt shaker. But it's the salt of the world. And that's why some churches need some shaking. 
to get the salt out there. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, not the light of the illuminated. And here's what we do. We have a light competition and comparison. Oh, look at my light. Look at mine. And we try to, to be more spiritual than the next person. I hate it when preachers try to be super spiritual. We are the light of the world, and that's what we need to do. I know some, even some preachers who use the, their ministry office as an excuse not to make any contact with people. I'm a prophet. I don't talk to people. Oh, that's what a prophet is supposed to do. I don't get into small talk. <laughs> Jesus had small talk with small people. He spoke to the children. And we cannot use those things as an excuse to be unsocial, asocial, or antisocial. Somebody said it this way, that Paul was courteous to break down barriers, but contemporary to build bridges. Here's what I found when we, we travel uh, to other countries, especially to countries where they do not speak English. I always endeavor to find some phrase to say in their language because I have found that opens up their hearts. Even if I mispronounce it, I, I went to Bulgaria for the first time. It was around about May that we visited there, and uh, I wanted to greet them. And in Bulgarian, I said to them, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Wrong season, but the right words in the right language. And it just opened up their hearts. Because you connect with people. I think I've shared this with you before. I have made a decision that if I can just speak to somebody in their own language, often when I put petrol in the car with a petrol attendant, I would just say to him, I've never found anybody respond with anything else but a great big smile. Let's respect people and connect with people like Paul did. Very important. That's the world that, that we find ourselves in. I like Paul's philosophy when it comes to preaching the gospel. And again, it's a, it's a good passage to go and, and, and read in 1 Corinthians 9, here from verse 19 onwards. And I'm going to paraphrase it. Paul says, I'm free from all men. He, he's basically saying, I'm nobody's slave, but I have the freedom to come and go as I please. I'm not bound by any man-made obligation. Nevertheless, he says, I have made myself a slave to all. And then in that passage, he makes this statement, and you can go and read it at home in, uh, in verse 22. He says, I have become all things to all men that by all means I may save some. And what he's saying here, he's saying, I'm not compromising. I'm not getting involved in their lifestyle. He says, but I'm putting myself on their level so that by all means I could win some. And that's what we need to do. We need to connect with people so that they can connect with Christ. That's our calling. 
Another lesson that we learn from Paul here is that we should know God and his word. How can we introduce people to the unknown God if we don't know him properly? So here they find themselves uh, dedicating an altar to the unknown God, and, and, and go and read Paul's sermon. It's such an amazing message that he gives because it is clear that he knew God, he knew God's word, he had a relationship with Jesus, and he could introduce them now to this is the God that you need to know. So he speaks to them about a universe that they considered to be inhospitable, a fate that was impersonal, a purpose that was insignificant, and gods that were inconsistent. And he tells them, he has a God that you can trust, you can rely on, and he loves you. And he wants to enter into a relationship with you. So he speaks about God as creator, as provider, as ruler, as judge, and ultimately as Savior. He knew God. And in contrast, again, in our days to today, there are so many people that have little knowledge about God, but they want to know everything about the occult. They want to know everything about the devil and demons and idols and curses and spells. And I, I remember Kenneth Hagin saying these words, and, and that's been kind of my approach all these years. He says, there are three things you need to know as a Christian. You need to know who God is, number one. You need to know who you are in Christ, and then you need to know who your enemy is in that order. Don't start with the enemy first. And don't start with yourself first. I can tell you who you are. You're a mess without Christ. And, 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 you know, in, in some churches, it's all about me. It's just a motivational talk about who I am and how I can be successful. Let me say this. I can tell you this. If you have Jesus, you'll be successful. And so that's the important thing. I wish I had the time to share with you here because when Paul spoke in this academic situation on, on the hill of Mars, he refuted some of the, um, the false philosophies, all the isms of that time, and I, I have them written down here, there are about 20 isms that he actually refuted in his sermon and, and, and telling them what, what the truth was all about. But I'd like to, to rush and, and, and try and finish. Here's another lesson we can learn from Paul. We should preach Jesus and his gospel. Nothing else. Because here's how his sermon ends in verse 31. He says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And then he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, God sent Jesus to come into this world as a man. And Jesus died for us. Jesus was raised from the dead. And we, through Jesus, can be saved from eternal judgment. That's his message. I'm amazed at preachers today who have their own holy hobby horse that they preach on. And Jesus doesn't even feature. I know of some preachers, if you allow them, they preach on the mark of the beast every Sunday. And the people will just get sick, sick, sick.
I always say to, to young ministers in Bible school situations, I said, do not preach what makes you happy. Because sometimes people want to just preach what they, they want to say, what they want to say. Preach what people need to hear. And that's the message that, that, that Paul brought. And uh, uh, I, I quickly just want to share this with you. I found this beautiful definition uh, of, of preaching by Bernard Manning. He was an English church historian. And he said it this way. Preaching is the manifestation of the incarnate word from the written word by the spoken word. Wow. So preaching is the transmission of a person, Jesus, through a person, the preacher, to a company of persons, the audience. It's all about Jesus. And that's what we need to learn from Paul. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, not my gospel. And lastly, and this is such an important lesson that I had to learn, we should leave the results to God. There was a time, I'll be honest with you, that I was moved by immediate results. If something didn't happen in the service, I felt it was a failure. I have since realized that it's not the immediate results that are important. It's the fruit that lasts. It's being able to change people's lives, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime. And it's very interesting, and I wish I had the time to share with you from the book of Acts, because Luke was a very careful historian, but he probably didn't even give us all the, the details about the effects of, of Paul's ministry. But when you do study the book of Acts, you'll find that from Paul's various ministry trips, he had mixed results in every city, province, and region. And the only town mentioned in the book of Acts where Paul didn't have opposition was the town of Derby, where he ministered. In every other town, he had opposition. And it doesn't look like he was a very successful preacher, but we quote him today extensively. So here in Athens, different results. If you read here from verse 32 onwards, some mocked, others said, we'll hear you again. And then some joined him and believed. So actually three responses, rejection, some scorned his message, ridiculed him, reflection, some procrastinated, postponed and said, we'll hear you again. And then reception, others believed and became part of the group of disciples. So Sometimes there are mixed results when you share the gospel. What is important is there were some significant people saved on that day. We read about Dionysius, the Areopagite, uh, one of the judges of that court who got saved. We read about a woman, and she must have been significant because she's singled out by name, Damaris, who was saved that day. There's a story about Billy Graham who did a, uh, uh, or, or rather about a, an evangelist who did a crusade in Charlotte in North Carolina, and he wrote in his journal, in his diary that night, that it wasn't a successful crusade. Only two young men gave, came up. One gave his life to Christ the first time, others, the other one rededicated his life. But the one who gave his life to Christ that night was Billy Graham. And it looked unsuccessful 
only one real convert. But Billy Graham became the man who's probably communicated Christ to more people than any person dead or alive. Leave the results to God. Don't look at the immediate results. Thomas Merton put it this way. He said, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And God is the one that is responsible for the results. Don't force results through scare tactics, through hard cell hype. Don't, if you have just a few results, speak evangelistically and say many people came. Tens of people came, and you know that there were just 20. That's two tens. So easy to, to use that kind of tactic. And don't fail to see the difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction and emotional manipulation. Focus on long-term fruit. I want to conclude with this. God is the one who does the calling. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the convicting. And Jesus is the one who does the cleansing. You're just the channel. You're just the instrument. I lost my reputation about having results long ago. <laughs> it's too late. And I don't want to say I don't care about results or immediate results. But I'm not moved by it. I'm not moved by what I see. I know God is at work in the lives of people. And if it only brings one Dionysius or Damaris to God, that person can change the whole city. So I want to encourage you, you have the same gospel that Paul had. You have the same indwelling Holy Spirit that Paul did. And you preach the same Jesus that Paul did. Leave the results to God. And learn from this Areopagus Academy. Amen. Let's stand.